Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is Season 1, That Miracle That Happened, That One Time. And this is Episode 113, The Grand Theory of History. We ended last episode with the idea of discussing negative feedback loops that somehow Britain avoided. These were two of the three binding constraints, to use uh, Joel Mokier's words in The Enlightened Economy, that Britain faced as a pre-modern economy. The first negative feedback loop is the Malthusian limit. We've discussed this at length, how famine and disease eliminated population growth in all previous cases of world history. Population growth, in turn, inhibits per capita income growth. How Britain was agriculturally 80% more productive and trade allowed imports of food that banished large-scale famine. Population triples following the end of the Western marriage pattern. Uh, We've had a discussion or mention of this 75 times now. The second negative feedback loop in pre-modern economies is more dramatic. Whenever a religion becomes rich, it incents poorer neighbors to steal or conquer. Histories full of plundering, during the first Hundred Years' War, at the beginning anyway, Englishmen sang the praises of the rich countryside of southern France. How delightful it was, and how enormous the booty that resulted from their plundering campaigns known as the Chevauchet. We've seen Vikings, pirates, and states engage in this at scale. We've described how a third of the population was killed in the Thirty Years' War, how many regions of France suffered the same in the wars of religion, We haven't covered the French invasions of Italy in the 16th century, but that's another example. We discussed in summary of how Julius Caesar dealt with the 3 million population of Gaul with his conquest. Kill 1 million, enslave 1 million, tax 1 million. So nice and neat. Uh, This problem is the theme of the ruin of Kesh, our world's proto-literature. Set in Darfur, yeah, that Darfur, It tells the story of a beautiful and very clever princess and her loyal, clever prince who tricked the religious authorities in Arabian night style to abandon traditional practices which held the kingdom back. You see, they were never taught Chesterton's fence. And failing to understand the deep reason for the traditional practice and the explanation they were told was obviously false, they took against the tradition a fallacy of the intelligent that's often repeated throughout history. They overthrew the tradition, and their country became immensely rich for three generations, and then the wolves came, and they were unable to defeat them all. They ravaged and pillaged, for the wealth of Kesh was a byword throughout the world. For years, this was regularly repeated until even the stones and marble were hauled away, for even the stones of Kesh were prestigious and nothing was left but a few mud huts along the riverbank. So that's the barest summary of the Ruin of Kesh. I feel like I can read it ten times and get something different out of it each time. Anyway, just before the 1700 reference point we're using for this arc, Britain was conquered by an invading army, by a Dutch-Danish army welcomed by the great Whig magnates, which eventually captured and then lost James II. Where did he go? It wasn't an invasion that caused suffering in Britain, but it caused suffering in Ireland, where the French landed in the next year, the next war born of this invasion in 1688, three years before Monmouth's invasion was defeated. Anyway, as we covered, Britain did suffer a partial setback due to the devastation of the wars of 1638 to the 1651 period. But 1700 is important because it is at the beginning of the military enlightenment. 
armies began behaving far more humanely to the civil population all over Europe. There were exceptions, of course, as we covered in the Spanish invasion of Portugal, but that merely made the people in arms defeat the Spanish. Anyway, even if winds, God's finger, and the Royal Navy hadn't barely managed to keep the French from invading England three times before Napoleon, the French would have been unlikely to devastate the countryside the way that, say, William the Beautiful or Forkbeard did, and that is due to the Enlightenment. Anyway, while French historians tend to see things differently, I see the whole series of events, the Glorious Revolution and the Second Hundred Years' War, as very closely tied to France's efforts to plunder their small but rich neighbor, the Netherlands. Mokir suggests it's possible the Dutch did not develop even further due to the terribly high cost of defending themselves from France. And we've talked about this some as French invasions basically turn Dutch politics upside down every time. They oscillate from strong republic to strong stadtholder in accordance with the rhythm of French invasions. William of Orange's invasion of England was in some ways less about his own ambition than a desperate attempt to save his country from Louis XIV. So this drive to simply take from your rich neighbor was, is, still very much alive as a driving force in history, as Mokir points out. So, here's a curious fact. Economists will sometimes put the devastation of armies and the depredation of pirates in the same category as corruption or special noble or royal privileges over the common folk. These are more subtle ways to expropriate wealth. Uh, taxes, monopolies in the Tudor or Stuart style when taken to the extreme, as they often were, reference the killing of proto-industrialization in Bengal around this very same year, 1700. So there, all this war is the second form of negative feedback operating throughout history to eliminate signs of economic growth. Britain was free from this general human problem. There was a third binding constraint, and that is technology or useful knowledge. Pre-modern economies could and did invent radical new technologies. We've discussed many of them. But these advances either settled down into a new dominant design and stopped being endlessly improved, or many, many were lost. We've already discussed that happening with coke-fired blast furnaces in China and the steam engine. So, this inadequate knowledge, no scientific rigor to keep experimenting with new knowledge. When something like that was developed, it tapered off and died. Somehow just missing a key ingredient as in classical Greece or the Abbasid Caliphate. Uh, this time, in 1700, we have to reckon with the effect of the Enlightenment, because in many ways, Britain was still a traditional society with a traditional economy, at least on the surface. You have the influential lords, the local JP, the parish administration, controlling people's lives. 32% of people still worked in agriculture though already this was much less than on the continent. And Mokir drops the intriguing fact that as high a percentage of the population was involved in industry in 1700 as in 1850. This sounds impossible, but the West Country, the Midlands, and the North, a, a huge part of the population was involved in part-time home industry. Spinning, weaving, basket, and broom making were the most common. These home industries would be destroyed by the factory system in time, but much of rural England was involved in part-time agricultural work and part-time home industry. 
The point here is that the specialization of labor we associate with modern economies is still developing. The obstacles to technological innovation were still pretty enormous, though, as we discussed, there was some innovation. Just to review quickly, Darby's Coke furnace at Colebrookdale, the steam engine in 1712, the knitting frame supporting the wide availability of socks, all the agricultural advances we covered, and yet there was no concept of modern, systematic research and development. All these innovations were created by a few obsessives working mainly on their own or with one assistant. And so we see the working out of a competitive economy where a very small number of innovators was able to influence one industry after another. But there already was a new, highly innovative industry, even by modern standards, and that was concentrated in London in Exchange Alley off Lombard Street. And there, government debt and joint stock company shares were traded by specialists. These are all post-Cromwell developments, much in deliberate imitation of Dutch financial markets. The Bank of England was now operating side-by-side with the Goldsmith Bankers. Its operations only started in the 1690s. The significance there is that debt is becoming more a matter for markets, whereas before... A large portion of total debt was a series of private arrangements between the crown and wealthy merchants or bankers. So, for 1700, England is more commercial, sophisticated, and prosperous than the continent, despite London smelling every bit as foul as Paris. And possibly we can see this as a result of widespread respect for the rule of law, even if it wasn't always followed, And this gets us an approach to one of the leading theories about the Industrial Revolution. This is Douglas North's idea of England after the Glorious Revolution solving the commitment problem. The commitment problem is an abstract notion economic historians have come up with that basically describes a situation where the government has the monopoly on violence and yet does not abuse this power. So that's the great problem. That this is a great insight, seemingly obvious that people now can interact voluntarily, free from fear of violence, to make transactions that are mutually beneficial. And then all the benefits of free markets can begin to flow. And by 1700, London had really replaced Amsterdam as the de facto center of international economic activity. Free market ideas are not really replacing mercantilists at this point and there isn't a real out-in-the-open rhetorical battle going on, when Adam Smith, uh, certainly an Enlightenment figure, comes out with the Wealth of Nations in 1776, the rhetorical battle will be won with only a few difficult specifics for people to still get their heads around. Nevertheless, we look at Europe and see that Britain in 1700 is immune from the worst mercantile excesses we see there state-owned factories, mandated and government-directed companies, a great deal more protection of local industry, and close guild controls. So already we see an instinctive trust in markets, quote, and a sense that the economic system is best left to its own devices was already taking shape many decades before The Wealth of Nations was published, unquote. And now, of course, there were efforts by special interests to get Parliament to give them special deals at the expense of everyone else. Though, of course, the request is never framed that way. 
Manker Olson coined the term distributional coalitions, quote, to describe a group that uses the coercive power of the state to distribute resources to its members, unquote. They didn't win often enough to destroy the miracle, though. There were lobbies that grew up following the Glorious Revolution and the increase in the spending power of Parliament. They sometimes succeeded. Uh, Landlords got bounties for exporting grain. Considering that Parliament is full of landlords, this isn't surprising. Nor is it surprising that agricultural mercantilism was the longest-lasting form. Others, like the banning of cloth buttons to protect silk and mohair producers, were maybe more typical. But uh, things like the Bankruptcy Act of 1706 and the Calico Acts helped to shape the economic landscape. We've already talked about the attempt and failure of the Sheffield Cutlers to ban the export of Huntington's hard, crucible steel. It could so easily have been much worse. It's worth making a couple points about individual rights and religion that I've made in other episodes. In 1700, Britain is not a free market economy, and it is not a democracy, and people don't have a lot of the rights we take for granted today. Roughly speaking, there were no free market economies, and nobody had those rights anywhere. Comparatively, though, the religious rights people had seemed to be vitally important, and this would strongly affect the character of the Enlightenment in Britain. Only Anglicans could hold public office, but dissenters had freedoms in occupational choice, free association, choice of residence, and could trade in the market. So religiously persecuted people immigrated to England despite the limits on their rights. Huguenots, Jews, Calvinists from the Platinate all came to England and made many important contributions to the miracle. And it was because they could be relatively free and their lives and families would not be threatened. So if you can't vote, go to Oxford or Cambridge or work for the customs, at least no one will set you on fire or rape your daughters. There's a quote from John Locke, quote, Toleration has at last been established by law in our country, not perhaps so wide in scope as might be wished for by you and those like you who are true Christians, free from ambition of envy. Still, it is something to have progressed so far, unquote. And this is real change. It's reflective of a widespread change in attitude. Before, people used to sincerely believe that divided religion caused plagues, droughts, and gray, wet summers. Religious Anglican bigotry was a force that would still have consequences. Joseph Priestley would be burned out of his house. The 1710 election would elect a bunch of Tories. The 1780 Gordon riots were the most destructive things to hit London between the Great Fire and the Blitz. And still, all in all, kind of small potatoes compared to the previous centuries and convulsions and mass slaughter in the Vendée still to come. And then the other point about not a free market economy, well, in some sectors it was a pretty free economy. People with the power to interfere generally did not. The norms changed, and elites were far less corrupt than before. It really was safe to try an experimental economic venture without a powerful backer. This is new. 
So now, Mokir has set the stage with weaker boundary conditions faced in Britain than any country ever had. The negative feedback loops exist, but don't fully run. And the Enlightenment itself is dedicated to pushing back the constraint of inadequate knowledge. Some of the specific things Enlightenment did to push these boundaries are the causal channels that Mokir will use to demonstrate the influence of the Enlightenment upon the miracle. So, there are a lot of different views on what the Enlightenment is. People at the time understood something new and important was happening, and it also generated cynicism. Kant famously said of it, It was an age of enlightenment, but it was not an enlightened age. Uh, Richard Rorty, the philosopher, says that the Enlightenment consisted of two projects. One, a political one that would create a better society, and two, a philosophical one that would replace religion with rational thought and understand nature. Now, to me, that sounds like three programs. The understand nature part does not at all require replacing religion with rational thought. And the scientific part of the Enlightenment went on with highly religious people. And if I break it apart that way, separating out what's proved to be harmful or pointless atheism from the scientific program, well, it would be satisfying, but I'd be making a mistake. What Rorty is implying is that the Enlightenment was philosophical rather than scientific. The scientific part belongs as part of an earlier Baconian program, especially in Britain, because, and this is a totally key and vital point, I'll state baldly for the first time, Britain did not need atheism to move forward the way the continent did to shake off bad habits. Okay, you could say the continent needed atheism is bad framing. Okay, let's say the Enlightenment then was inevitably atheistic in the Catholic countries. They threw off a powerful institution and overturned very resilient modes of thinking, honed and refined over a thousand years about papal power, the Episcopal and the priestly role. Remember, when talking about the savory steam engine and the limitations it had, that by sucking water it could only raise it 34 feet at best because of the opposing force of gravity. Well, Galileo and Torricelli discovered that when Galileo was under house arrest. Descartes had to leave the Catholic world to publish. Copernicus delayed publishing to his deathbed. Tycho Brahe, the Inquisition, wanted him to come to Rome. Atheism was in part an inevitable intellectual response to fighting the institution of the medieval church. And so Britain could keep its Protestantism, its Enlightenment, was not all that hostile or opposed to religion. Not to deny there were not a few individual atheists. Absolutely. But there was no powerful movement like we see in the revolution in France, no temples to reason, no violent, bloody overthrow of religion. So the miracle continued to develop in Britain because it avoided the failure modes of 19th century atheism. This is another reason for all that discussion of religion in Britain. It's not only about public order, it's also about total state power. On the continent, as soon as atheism was intellectually established, they immediately began reframing the continent in their own minds, with state power standing in for religion. Just a giant failure of imagination. 
they reaped the harvest of blood and destruction of their awful ideas, their versions of socialism in the 20th century, sown by minds that could not escape the medieval church even in their own thoughts. Those ideas were formed in the 19th century, and if the Anglophone world had not been aloof, not boxed in to recreating medievalism where the state or party stands in for God, geez, I want to ask the 19th century intellectuals, where are your imaginations, people? Anyway, just so you don't get the wrong idea, I'm not asserting atheism is provably false. Even when the substrate of the universe is finally understood, or when and if some future AI validates the simulation hypothesis, there may well be unanswered questions. Atheism just had the most hellishly bad failure mode at that time. For the purposes of the miracle, an important point is that the Anglophone world did not fall into that failure mode, in large part because they could be flexible enough about religion to allow things to exist like Anglo-Catholicism and Methodism. Britain avoided doing all the crazy revolutionary things that were so outrageous. They enabled reaction to stay in power far longer than they should have on the continent. And I suppose I should stop here. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>